You know, one day God had a dream, and part of that dream was about relationships and who he would get to live out his dream. And then it's just amazing that he made you and you and you and you and you and everybody in here be a part of that dream. Each of us was created to fulfill that dream. I, I think with that, I think most of us, as we, uh, especially as we've gotten into the Bible and taken a look at our own lives and what they were like prior to becoming a Christian, and some of you are in that midst right now while, where you're trying to sort it out and figure it out and really what is my purpose in life, God created us to fulfill a dream, and you're made for that purpose. God knows the future, and his dream is that each and every one of us will be a part of it, and that we'll write that future together. You know, one of the things, again, I love about God is how he's always worked through men. You know, as we've gone through our series, we took a look at the life of Noah, look at Joseph, look at David, and when it came to writing the future, what it got down to with each and every one of these individuals is based on circumstances, based on situations, how did they respond? How did they react? Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. And that's what I love about the Bible. We get the opportunity to see both perspectives and ultimately be able to personalize and understand where our decisions can lead us based on the decisions we make. I love it when God takes us ordinary people like you and me and he uses them to accomplish mighty things. Now, how many of you love superheroes? Most of us. How many of you have seen Captain America? My, my son bailed on me and went and saw it on his own. I, I, I'm working through it. I'm working through it. Comes home to let me know how incredibly awesome it is. And my son's a little bit of a patriot, so I guess there's quite a bit of that going on in the movie. Uh, he didn't really put any spoilers out there for me one way or the other, other than that he's willing to go see it again, to see it with me, which I'm grateful for. But, you know, I love superheroes growing up. And just really thinking through that. You know, we uh, just kind of thinking about superheroes. One of the things with superheroes, usually there's something that takes place that gives them their powers, right? You know, we got, uh, well, probably can't see the spider on his wrist up there, but Peter Parker, you know, got his powers by a, getting bit by a radiated spire, spider. Uh, to his right, we have the Fantastic Four on their way, these astronauts on the way into this cosmic radiation field, this, this storm of radiation. And then uh, there's the uh, arc reactor that we're all pretty familiar with if we're Iron Man fans, right? And then one of my favorites, actually it, it comes out of two of those. I mean, I love the Fantastic Four. Anybody tell me which uh, character you think my favorite is? <laughs> yeah, you, you guys got it. You know, I, I guess being a, being a you know, peewee in junior high school and high school, the, the idea of being able to be big and kind of ugly, but, you know, save the damsel in distress and destroy all kinds of stuff in the uh, process kind of appealed to me. Uh, you know, and I think there was, uh, as with David Banner, who was radiated by gamma rays, uh, that, that radiation with him, the guy had some anger issues. You know, I remember uh, the old guy, what was it, Bill Bixby back in the day? You don't want to make me angry. <laughs> you know, and, they, and these guys, were, they're amazing. We have the, uh, the opportunity to kind of live out vicariously through them some of the things that individually we'd like to be able to do ourselves. But you know, when we think about the Bible, the Bible's real. 
all the accounts in the Bible are true. And what I love about it is each story really is so much better than any movie or any superhero that we can see. You know, the men and the women, they're, they're not superheroes like the guys that we just talked about. David wasn't a hero. Didn't have any special powers that set him up for the incredible things that he went on to do. But he did have the ability to make the right decisions. And in some instances, the wrong decisions. You know, we look at some of the others that we, we've had the opportunity to look at the last few weeks. David, we know, also made some wrong decisions. He was a sinner. Joseph, I'd say probably 95% of his life was uh, really online there. We know that as a young guy, uh, as with youth, uh, what was one of his issues? A little bit of pride in that mix. You know, I, the thing with the brothers I get, but, you know, kind of conveying to dad, yeah, you know, dude, uh, you're, you're going to be bowing down to me too, man. Just dream, dad. Can't do anything about that. Yeah, they're, they're just, it goes on and on and on, the list of men and women that did great things for God. But the thing that inspires me is I'm never going to be a, you know, David Banner. I'm never going to be the thing. I'm not going to be able to, to, to pull off any of the stunts or any of the incredible feats of strength, uh, mass chaos, destruction, dealing with the bad guys. Because, you know, I haven't been radiated or bit or any of those things. And, you know, the bottom line is we know that, by and large, if you... We're subjected to any of those things, you're going to be dead. I mean, let's just be real. That's why they're called comic books. I'll take my wife to the movies and we'll watch these things. And she's like, that's just so lame. And it's like, babe, it's a comic book. Okay, they're, they're written for a certain age bracket, and some of us as men just don't outgrow it. It's still cool. <laughs> right, guys, you with me on that? Yeah. Hey, Amen. The testosterone's in the house. But you know, getting back to the Bible, these men and women, they weren't superheroes, those in the Bible. And the thing I love about the Bible is there's only one true hero in the Bible. And we kind of got that in the last song. My God is mighty to save. That's the only real ultimate hero that we have in the Bible because anything that anybody went on to accomplish that meant anything was because they did it for their hero, God. You know, none of them, none of the people we read about in the Bible were good enough, or capable enough, or courageous enough. And there's one valid question that we can ask about all those so-called Bible heroes is, why them? How did they end up getting in the mix? Why were they written about? Why do we have their accounts today to deal with? Why them? Why did God choose them to do great and mighty things? And you know, ultimately, we look at it, usually it's because of faith, but they didn't all start with great faith. But each of them did have a bent towards believing that allowed God to build great faith in their lives. You know, looking at Moses today, we're not going to take the usual course uh, with what we know. Um, not going to spend a whole lot of time with the parting of the Red Sea. Not going to deal with the whole baby in the basket thing floating down the river that got picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, any of the stuff that led to him being ostracized uh, when it came to what took place there in uh, Egypt. But what I really wanted to do today, and I, I've read a couple books on Moses here in the last month and spent some time really just going through 
really understanding the need for reading the parallel scriptures in the Bible, going through Exodus and looking at the corresponding accounts in Deuteronomy, and even in the New Testament with Stephen in Acts 7, it's amazing some of the things that I missed, but the biggest aspect of it, I think, was the timetable that took place during Moses' 120 years on this planet. As our relationship with God grows, it's amazing how faith in our lives grow. You know, God ultimately gives us everything we need, and I think on the surface we kind of believe that, we understand that, but it's up to us to decide what we will believe, that we will trust God and what we will choose to focus on in our individual's lives. You know, the obstacles that come into our lives, they serve to do a couple of different things, but if we're God-reliant, those challenges, those obstacles, those giants in our lives will give us the ability to really grow and mature and have the right focus moving forward. You know, Moses, who was a child of a slave, son of a queen. He was born in a hut, but he lived in a palace. He inherited poverty, but he lived, had the opportunity to live with unlimited wealth, leader of armies. Yet at the same time, I don't know what it is about God and his people and sheep, but the keeper of flocks of sheep as well. He's called the mightiest of warriors, yet perceived himself as being the meekest of men. He was educated in Pharaoh's courts, but he went to live in the desert. Was a city boy who left for the wilderness. You know, there was some whining and complaining about the way God created him. He claimed that he was of heavy tongue, that there were some issues with his ability to actually communicate, yet he spoke for God. He was giver of the law, and a picture of grace to come. And I think for all of this, the thing that encourages me, it illustrates failures of faith as well as unbelievable successes when we truly rely on God. You know, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Moses' father, Amram, was a godly man who loved the nation of Israel. And Amram was concerned, worried about the nation of Israel and what was going to come of them as the slaves that they were in Egypt, especially when Pharaoh came out with that little decree where he was uptight about the growth that had taken place with the Israelites, how their numbers had just exploded and felt that there was a fear by having this large number of exiles, these, these, these Israelites, part of their community was really concerned with it and over, being overthrown, so he comes out with a decree that all the young boys, the babies from what, that point forward would be killed. So Amran had a concern about his son as well. But he believed God, trusted in God, and in, in a dream that he had, there was this incredible way of making sure that the people would be delivered from bondage and his son would be spared. Amran believed God, and I think for us as parents, there's something to be said for making sure that our kids have the opportunity to see our faith. There's this, this importance for all of us, for our friends to see our faith for our co-workers to see our faith, for our classmates to see our faith. And I believe that that faith that Moses saw as a child is something that became so much evident later on in his life, so much so that in Hebrews 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. You know, Amram, Moses' father, he decided to depend on that dream that God had given him. 
He didn't abandon Moses to the Nile, but he surrendered Moses to the care of God. For me, that's just amazing as a father to be able to do that. And then to see the way all those other things were lined up. I'm more convinced than ever that the seed of Moses' faith began with his parents. Amred and Jacobed were virtually unknown members of a group of slaves. How many of you remember them by name? You know, I'd like to say that I did, but I didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's just a reality, yet they're listed in the roll call of the faithful in Hebrews 11. We think through the names of those that we do know. It's amazing that his parents were there. They were ranked among the greatest heroes of the faith in chapters 11. You know, and part of the thing with Moses in, in, in understanding the culture of the Egyptians and the Israelites at the time, as you know, many of you know, as Moses was discovered, Miriam, his sister, was kind of watching from afar and saw the princess take him up out of the water and, you know, hey, uh, I know somebody that can kind of help take care of him and nurse him in the whole bit. Uh, you want me to go get her? So we got Moses' mom, who now is back into the caretaker position of her own child. And the, the, the thing that I didn't really realize is from a cultural standpoint, he was probably raised in his parents' household until somewhere in the realm of the age of 10 to 12 years of age, which is that transition to manhood, which is when he would have made it, he would have made that transition in all the training and the wealth and basically what goes on within the Egyptian culture. So it's, just a, it's great to see the roots that were planted in his life early on. You know, the story of Moses actually goes from the beginning of the book of Exodus all the way to the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy. And when I agreed to take this on, I, I forgot how much depth of information the Bible gives us on Moses. I mean, his life story is so extensive. It goes through the entire book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then, you know, of course, he's also the author of Genesis as well. But his story fills Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And for me, here are three lessons that I believe that we as disciples can take away from the life of Moses. Number one, just really t- looking at his life, we're going to take a look at the first 40 years of that life and the need to learn. As the, the title of this, uh, the message today is, Write the Future to Learn adapt and overcome. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. And you know, to, to learn, it's good to look at the definition here. Learn, learning is to acquire knowledge of or skill through study, instruction, or experience. To become informed with, to ascertain, to learn truth, to acquire knowledge or skill, to become informed. And looking at, again, how God set this all up, it's really amazing how God sets all of us up as disciples of us. How many came to the Bible or to church or becoming a Christian on our own? There there may be one or two of you out there. I, I don't see any hands up. But, you know, you look at the way God dialed things in for Moses and how he was set up during those first 40 years, the things that he was able to learn and ascertain God would use to deliver his people. You know, I wasn't looking to become a Christian. Uh, From the age of 13 to 32, I know most of you have heard this, I was agnostic. I had no desire, no interest. Uh, When I thought about religion, the only thoughts that came to mind were hypocrisy, something that was for people that were weak, uh, something for those that were on their last leg, the burnout 
bummed out, the bottom, hit bottom, and that, that, that Christianity was a crutch. I was wrong. You know, based on those beliefs, my marriage was destined for doom. The relationship with my children was destined for doom. And I'm sure at some point in time, I had an incredible amount of success in the professional world and the secular world, but it was only a matter of time before I would have spun out of control there and ended up dead or in jail or something, just because a lot of the personal issues that I had, anger in particular, that I had this inability to overcome. You know, I think there was that, 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 that movie running in my head about the Hulk or the thing or whatever, and that was kind of, anybody wronged me. I took everything personally. And in my head, that was the reaction that took place, and sometimes it, it, it manifested itself physically. You know, it's, it's incredible, again, how God works. I'm grateful for the people he put in my life because I wasn't looking. I, I was unaware of really even having any need. And I'm, I'm sure with Moses, just kind of thinking through the whole thing, I mean, he, he loved God, but we'll, we'll see how he kind of expressed that as time goes on here in the message this morning. Charles Ayling, the author of The Earliest Times of 1000 B.C., writes that teachers were selected from officials of the land who were favorites of the reigning king. Students would study hieroglyphics and other scripts, copying, memorizing, putting back down on paper, list of words and names. And they all, you know, with that, because of Egypt being a, tra- a trading hub for a lot of the neighboring countries, Foreign language was something a lot of emphasis was put on as well. So public speaking was considered important, and it, made, it actually received major attention for anybody that was being raised up into royalty. The ability to write was something that was also very highly valued, and if young Moses was Hathshaput's adopted son, he was educated in the royal dynasty. You know, and just kind of thinking through that, it's kind of cool, again, how God lined things up. Here you got this slave... This getting, it'd be kind of the, the equivalent of one of our Ivy League school educations for free. I mean, God sent him up with a full-paid scholarship. And this would substantiate the biblical description of his education, his competency to dialogue before Pharaoh, though he claimed he wasn't a gifted speaker. And ultimately, you think back, you look at these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. He wrote them. I mean, does this sound like a guy that's unskilled, that doesn't have the ability to speak or to convey thoughts? And again, this is how God set him up. He set him up for us to be able to read those accounts today. So for the first 40 years of his life, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court. And for me, it's kind of interesting. You know, Pharaoh, the whole thing with killing these kids off and just the way he had structured things was for his protection just really shows the, the foolish me, foolishness of man's wisest plan. And that Pharaoh ended up paying room and board and the education for the man was, who was going to accomplish the exact thing that Pharaoh was trying to present, or actually prevent. I mean, it's just amazing what took place here in this, in this situation. Job 5.13 says, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of their wile are swept away. You know, getting back to the book of Hebrews again in uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 24, we are told in this passage, it says, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of the king of Egypt's daughter. He chose to suffer with God's people instead of enjoying all of the treasures of Egypt because he was looking for God's reward. 
even with that, and again, I think what it, we, we've got to understand for those of us that are parents is how important it is for us to model Christianity for our kids. In our marriages, in our interaction with one another, in our interaction with our kids, what are we talking about? The things that Moses establishes in the book of Deuteronomy, how we need to be talking about spiritual things, how we need to be talking about God, how that needs to be the framework in so many ways of our lives. Because you can't tell me that with everything he was exposed to in Egypt, I mean, think about ourselves. If you were offered his education for free, if you were offered the power that he was on the forefront of for free, if you imagine, we, we've seen the movies, and I'm sure the, 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 the wealth and just the grandeur probably exceeds anything we've ever seen on screen when it comes to the Egyptian culture. They're living, the places they lived in. I mean, just look at the tombs that were built for them after they died. Imagine how they lived. All that! And Moses decides, I'm going to suffer for God's people because of God's reward that awaits me. Forty years in those conditions, and that was his focus on God. You know, everything that you've learned in life, as we see with Moses, becomes useful when it's placed in God's hands. Joseph states that Moses became a mighty military leader, Josephus. In Acts 7, verse 22, Stephen says that he was mighty in speech and action. Yet through all that, he decides to suffer with God's people. In Acts 7, verse 23, it reads, As he was approaching the age of 40, it was on his heart to visit his brothers, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. Now he assumed that his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Don't you hate when that happens? The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully. And so he's saying, you know, come on, man, I'm the deliverer, baby. I got this going on. Just took out this Egyptian, this mistreating you guys, and... You're fighting, you're squabbling. Come on, let's, let's, let's get our acts together here. What the heck is this all about? And of course, he got the kind of response that he was looking for. Well, actually, uh, we see that he doesn't. It says, but the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed him away saying, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way that you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And uh, Moses, uh, I think he just kind of rattled his cage a little bit. <laughs> Because it goes on to say, at this disclosure, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. You know, we can think about this action, and it's like, well, how, why did this go on? Or how did this take place? And what did God think? And, well, I don't think God, well, I know God didn't condone the, the, uh, condone the sinful aspects of this, this action. But I think he did use it to move no, Moses to the next phase of his training. And again, God can take the things that we're ashamed of. He can take our regrets. He can take our failures. Those things that we swirl them down, we'd never compromise. And when those things are placed in God's hands and we surrender them, God will use them. Amen? Romans 8.28 says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, you know, we have this situation with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears about this situation with Moses, sees this as a threat to his leadership, 
You know, this adopted Hebrew had to be eliminated. And again, Moses realizing that his life was in danger, runs and hides in the desert. Now, does that sound like a hero? Especially when you look at the amount of time that he spent there. Now, again, the grandeur of Egypt, living basically as a Bedouin with a tent in the middle of the desert for 40 years. And this takes us to our next point in that, you know, there are just sometimes in life we really need to work at adapting. You know, to adapt. What does that usually mean? I mean, there, there's a, a little bit of maybe inconvenience involved in some adjusting that takes place, right? I mean, the definition is adjust someone or something to different conditions, a new environment, to fit, change, or modify, to suit a new or different pers- purpose. You know, and that's exactly what the second 40 years of Moses' life consists of. Suddenly, you've got the arrow of Pharaoh's throne becoming a common sheep herder. You know, there's not a lot that's talked about for this 40-year period. After 40 years of being pampered and spoiled in the Egyptian court, Moses now learned what it meant to do without. This may be one of those tests that some of us have been faced with. What are we willing to give up in order to please God? Or are we unwilling to give up and we're more about pursuing what pleases us rather than God? I think that's a lot of what took place in those 40 years with Moses. What it meant to do without. You know, besides herding sheep, which we've seen many times, seems to be a perfect preparation for overseeing things. Um, Obviously, that prepped him for the exodus, going from sheep to over a million slaves, being called to deliver them to the promised land. And I love this about God. He uses lots of challenging circumstances and situations to get us where he wants us to be. In this situation, to get Moses where he wanted him. I mean, Exodus 2, Moses had to flee Egypt. Moses wanders around in the desert with no destination in mind, ends up sitting by a well. There he defends these seven shepherdesses, these seven women that are taking care of Jethro's sheep, who later goes on to become his father-in-law after he marries Zipporah and has two sons. And then he's out there on this kind of this final quest. He's got his sheep, and he's taken them to the backside of Mount Oreb, the mountain of God. And uh, that's where things uh, kind of change up a little bit for him. In Acts 7, again, verse 32, excuse me, 30, it says, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. In the flame of a burning bush, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I, I can't even begin to imagine the, the deep bass resonating voice, you know, rattling the, the mountain there. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. You know, earthquakes, thunder, lightning, the whole bit. And, you know, he kind of figures Moses' response here. So Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. That had to have been so incredibly intense. Forty years in the desert. You know, it's kind of eking out survival. Um, for some of us, you know, that appeals. The idea to be able to get out in the wilderness, man, no cell phones, no compute, man, you know, it's starting to sound good. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know about the 40-year factor. I'll, you know, we live in a coastal community. That, that would make that a little bit more challenging. And then just even thinking through this, first 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert. Can you imagine being 80 years old and having this going on? I think, man, okay, I'm 80, man. There must be some serious dimension happening here. What, what is up with this? Or the heart starts going a million miles an hour, and I'm thinking, 
God, you put him in that situation. What if you'd had a heart attack? Yeah, you know, it, it didn't happen. God's in control. He was right in the future with Moses. He knew what was going on. So Exodus 3 meets God. And ultimately, God had to do some supernatural things to get Moses' attention and start building his faith. We know Moses had a lot of objections. You know, we have the burning bush in Exodus 3. And then, you know, you can call them whatever you want to call them, objections, excuses. A lot of it was based on inferiority or or fear. You know, on that note, I just, when it comes to uh, making a difference and really going after things, I wanted to uh, lift up... uh, Connie Keeling, Maureen Gibson, the Atkins, and everybody else that volunteered for the uh, Del Air Center, getting that up and going for visitation for children, looking to reunite them with their families. Had the opportunity to go to that yesterday. And uh, one, I was very, feeling very challenged schedule-wise, but I really felt the need to be there. Um, and then as I got there, I found out it was a little bit more involved than I had expected. And uh, you know, the, preaching, this doesn't get me anxious. Uh, Wedding sometimes a little bit. This thing yesterday, I'm thinking, man, my heart's racing here. What the heck is up with this? You know, they had some TV station, none of you have ever heard the letters of the acronym of, that was there kind of recording some stuff. And we had a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and uh, uh, our, our councilwoman, uh, the congresswoman, Maxine Waters, was there. And it's really kind of cool. She is the first congressperson to write uh, child abuse legislation, which goes back decades. But, you know, it was just cool to see her taking the time out. But I just remember thinking to myself, okay, my heart's going here a little bit. I'm starting to feel anxious. What the heck is this all about? And then I, you know what, okay, dude, settle down. This is stupid. God's in control. And you know what, the bottom line is you're way too concerned about how you're going to do, and that's probably where this is all coming from. I think that's kind of what it was probably like with Moses, but... Really understanding that our fears, our insecurities, and I had a lot of them growing up, but ultimately inferiority is pride. Just as much as self-reliance is pride. Pride is when it's all about you. And it may fall in the realm of you thinking too highly of yourself, or you think of yourself as nothing. You know, and I love God's answer to Moses and all of his excuses and fears and everything that he put out there. God's got these incredible five words. I will be with you. I will be with you. You know, when Moses' earlier interaction there in Egypt where he thought he was doing the right thing for God, he failed. He was called out for being a murderer, and he had to flee for his life. And you know that that failure was something that probably weighed on him very heavily. How can he be sure that the same failure won't repeat itself time and time again? Because God told him so. God tells us so. God tells him that you won't fail this time because it is I who sent you. And this is what's so cool when we're focused on God. When we're in the center of God's will, we can't fail. You know, Moses still isn't totally buying in here. Moses says, God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites today and say to them, the God of the... The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is your name? Now, what should I tell them? And I'm sure he was looking for something really cool that just, you know, stating it verbally would strike fear in the hearts of the Israelites and would convey that, yeah, I'm Moses, I'm the man. You know, again, Moses isn't really convinced here. Those past failures taught him to be doubtful. And that can how, that's how it can be with us. 
those past failures are the things that Satan whispers in our ears. Dude, you remember that situation? Dude, you screwed that up royally. You're going to try that again? What? And that's how it was with Moses. I know that's what was ringing in his ears. That guy that said to him, who has given you the right to judge between us? And it was a question that Moses couldn't answer. So he finds himself in you know, this anticipation of being back into the same situation again, realizes he has no authority in Egypt. So this prompts the question about God's name. So he can tell them, you know, this sent me. And God says to Moses, and for me it's kind of comical, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am his sent me to you. I, I don't know why it is, but all I, I, can, I never am able to get that Abbott and Costello skit out of my head. You know, who's on first? Well, who sent you? I am sent me. <laughs> what? I am you? No, I am sent me. God, I think he's got a little bit of sense of humor. The thing is, though, this literally means, I am literally means, the God who exists. God was telling Moses to tell the Israelites, I am the God who is. I'm not the God who was. I'm not the God that 400 years in idolatrous Egypt taught you I am. I'm not the God of your imagination or your expectation. I am the God who is. I'm not the God you've heard about or the powerless God the Egyptians think I am. I am who I am. Why is this important for us today? I think sometimes we can slip into our own personal perception of who God is. You know, maybe our parents taught us who God is or was. And maybe those teachings came through some form of physical abuse maybe you were subjected to. And because of that, you've got this skewed picture of who God is. That's not God. You know, maybe it's a matter of having grown up in different churches. You know, and just thinking through Sundays being the most segregated day of the week. You know, having been raised in a black church or a white church or a Korean church. And, you know, and that can be our perspective of God. You know, that's one of the things I love about South Bay. It's one of the things I love about the International Churches of Christ. We're international. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Guys, take a moment, look around. Seriously, take a look around. Does this look segregated to you? I mean, we kind of run the spectrum of color here. It's kind of cool. But this is the thing. We've all grown up in Egypt where the world has indoctrinated us with its false sense of who God is. We need to let go of the God of our perceptions and seek the God who is. I want to repeat that because I really think this is important. We need to let go of the God of our perceptions and seek the God that is. In Exodus 4 verse 1, Then Moses answered and said, well, what if they will not believe me? Or what if they won't listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? I said, staff. He said, throw it on the ground. Moses listened to him, threw it on the ground. It became a certain. And what does he do? 
He's got some fear issues. He fled again. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. How many of you have handled snakes? Is grabbing a snake by a tail something that you want to make a habit of doing? You know, it's amazing. They coil up. They can actually throw themselves their entire body length. And they've got this incredible body that's pretty much nothing other than muscle. And you grab a tail, unless this thing's half dead, you're getting bit. It's coming back around to get you. And Moses knew this. He'd been in the desert for 40 years. He knows what a scorpion is and can do. He knows what a viper is and can do. Yet I love this about Moses. God gave him direction. What did he do? Grabbed it by the tail. What happened? Turned back into a staff. So stretched out his hand and he caught it. They became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. You know, we got Moses walking through all the excuses, his ability, his inability, his speech issues. You know, God kind of gets ticked off because every time he puts something out there to convince him, Moses pushes back. Have we ever been in that situation with God at all? I know for me the biggest one is timetable, just thinking through how God works from a standpoint of time. But we see here a little bit later in Exodus 4, kind of cool transition takes place here. It says, Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So that probably had to be a little encouraging to know that we're going to have to deal with that. So it says, Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. It was whose staff? It was Moses' staff. Whose staff is it now? This is so cool. Take God's staff. Take God's power. Take God with you. I mean, this is kind of, this kind of blew me out of the water a little bit. It's like, whoa, that's cool. It's kind of like Saul and his interaction with David. Well, David, you're God. Well, now God has really become Moses' God. I think this is a huge breakthrough for him right here. You know, we look at the different things that, that took place with that staff. Most of us are familiar with them. Didn't that staff kind of have a role in the plagues and his interaction with Pharaoh in Egypt? When there's a situation with Amalek and the Amalekites, remember what Moses was doing with his staff? God's staff. It was very evident it was God's staff. Holding it over his head. As long as he had it over his head, the battle was going their way. They were defeating their opponents. He got tired and the staff dropped. The tide turned and they started getting taken out. And then Aaron and Ur came out. And this is what we need to be about as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be lifting each other's arms for God. Amen? And this is what we see in the situation. That staff of God was the thing that empowered Moses to go on and do these incredible things. To have this incredible impact. We know he used that same staff to water a million plus uh, uh, Israelites in the desert. Some counts are as many as two and a half million of them. And that staff brought enough water out of a rock to take care of their needs on a daily basis. This takes us to the final point. Our need to overcome. Final 40 years. You know, it's amazing. When God gave Moses direction and Moses followed his life became very fulfilling. See him go back to Egypt. And to overcome means to succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty. Did he have a few? 
few million. <laughs> to get the better of, to prevail over, to get control of, to get, bring under control, master, conquer, beat, defeat. Moses became a great leader because he was willing to deal with his fears and grow in his faith. Moses got to commune with God face to face. Moses is still admired to this day, listed in the roll call of the faithful. And here are a few highlights from Moses' life that we see in the Old Testament. In the last 40 years, God carefully paved the way for Moses to be readmitted into the royal court of Egypt for a hearing before Pharaoh. God also provided help for his chosen leader in the form of family members like Aaron and Miriam, who stood by Moses' side as he faced Pharaoh. And, you know, and after weeks of bargaining with Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally tapped out and said, you know what, I'm done, man. Guys, get, get these Israelites, get them the heck out of here. I, I'm just so fed up. And it was rather interesting, is the very same punishment that Pharaoh put on the Israelites was the same punishment that the Egyptians had to contend with, the loss of their firstborn. Exodus 5 through Exodus 13, all kinds of grumbling begins. There's labor conditions, there's water conditions, there's food conditions, there's problems with the type of food. And then uh, picking up in Exodus 14, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached the Israelites, he looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us out to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out to Egypt? Isn't that what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. Seriously, is that what they really told them? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm I'm cool digging these ditches and, you know, working with the uh, mud with no straw and the continued demands to build these stinking triangular things that these pharaoh guys want. Yeah, they wanted to do that. That's kind of what excited them. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. That's kind of interesting. You must be quiet. You know, life hits us. And when life hits, there is that need to overcome, to grow and mature in our relationship with God. Sometimes it's just a matter of, we need to listen. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and quit complaining long enough to hear and see God work. You know, it's amazing. Exodus 15, after the delivered through the, the, uh, the Red Sea, Moses breaks out with this incredible song of gratitude and deliverance. And a few verses later, we got the people complaining again. We see it in Exodus, we see it in Leviticus, we see it in Numbers, we see it in Deuteronomy. Complaints, lack of faith, fear, grumbling. You know, and uh, just kind of thinking through this, why did the Israelites spend 40 years in the desert? You know, I've never had this timetable totally down before actually studying this out. It's kind of interesting. Deuteronomy 1, verse 19 through 40, kind of fills us in on why the 40 years. To Moses, we set out from Horeb and went across the great and terrible wilderness you saw on the way to the hill country, the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. When we reached Kadesh Barnea, I said, you have reached the hill country, the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession of it as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has told you. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged. Now, this is kind of interesting. Again, the growth that's taking place here, he's calling them to do the very same thing that God had been calling him to do. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. I am. And I am with you. So it's good to see that, you know, he's kind of taking heart his time with God. Then all of you approached me and said, let's send the men ahead of us so they may explore the land for us, bring us back a report about the route we should go up on and the cities that we'll come to. Plans seemed good to me, so I selected 12 men from among you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley Eskol, scouting the land. They took some of the fruit from the land in their hands, carried it down to us, and brought us back a report. The land the Lord our God is giving us is good. But you were not willing to go up. Rebelling against the command of the Lord your God, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites so they will destroy us because he hated us. That's so wild. I mean, all the victories they've seen, manna from heaven, quail, water in the desert, deliverance through the Red Sea, all because God hated them and wanted to take them out to the desert to destroy them. He hated us. Where can we go? Our brothers have discouraged us. The people are larger and taller than we are. The cities are large, fortified to the heavens. We also saw the descendants of Anakim there. So I said to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. And you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way. You traveled until you reached the place. But in spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who went before you on the journey to seek out a place for you to camp. He went in the fire by night and the cloud by day to guide you on the road you were traveling. When the Lord, Lord heard your words, he grew angry and swore an oath. None of these men in this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land on which he has set foot because he followed the Lord completely. How many times do we compromise? How many times have we had the clarity of Scripture we feel like, you know, I don't know if this passage totally applies to me. I don't think God meant me. I mean, God knows my situation. He wouldn't want me to do this or that or the other. Well, you're right. God does know your situation. And God is. God is now. God is in your life. God does have expectations. It says, encourage him, for he will enable Israel to inherit it. Oh, you know, let me back up. I'm sorry. The Lord was angry with me also because of you and said, you will not enter there either. Joshua's son of Nun, who attends you, will enter it. Now, we'll see this in a later passage, but Moses didn't follow God's direction specifically when it came to drawing out water for the people again at this point in time, and that God, he'd already struck the rock once with the staff. And then that rock was really the significance of what we have in Jesus Christ. He only needed to strike that rock once, just like Jesus only had to die for sin once. And God gave him the direction to call the water out of the stone, not to strike it. But he was so frustrated with the grumbling and complaining that went on he lost it in that frustration. He struck the rock. And now we see that he wasn't going to be able to enter the land either. Encourage him for this, Joshua, for you, he will enable Israel to inherit. Your little children who you said would be plunder. Your sons who don't know good from evil will enter there. I will give them the land and they will take possession of it. 
but you were to turn back and head for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Point in time that Moses is talking about here is three months into their journey. That really hit me. They could have been home in three months if they had listened to God. They thought they knew better. Rather than taking God at his word and taking God's direction, they thought it was more important for them to send spies in, scope it out. The report comes back, the land was everything as bit as good as God had told them it was. But just like it can be with us in our lives, we get distracted by the giants. It's kind of like Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on the water and the winds and the waves hit and he loses sight of God. They had lost sight of God. They had walked with God for three months and were delivered time and time and time again. They could have been home. That three months turned into 40 hellish, arduous years in a desert full of scorpions and snakes. So they would rather rely on the negativity of the spies versus what they themselves have witnessed time and time and time again with God. You know, I don't know exactly the why behind it, whether it was they just didn't want to listen, obey, or maybe they just weren't even grateful for the fact that they had been in servitude. And I know life probably wasn't easy, but three months of not cranking on building a pyramid and, you know, maybe having to do a little bit of a desert thing, as long as your needs are being met, you're not being whipped, you're you're being taken care of, you've got your family intact. Seemed like, you know, a small price to pay for what God had in store for them. Yet rather than that, they didn't want to listen or obey. They weren't grateful. They weren't careful with God's instruction. I think with all this, we can step into that same kind of mode. They were unwilling to overcome their fear or their bad attitudes or just their lack of faith. And you know what? God realized he could not build on that. How do we do today? We hang on to our past. We're ungrateful for the way God's worked in our lives because maybe we don't see him working right now. You know, and this is why I love this lesson about Moses in that you want to talk about some long suffering. I mean, you know, the first 40 years might have been okay, but 40 years in the desert at the age of 80, you know, extrapolate that on out. You're 120 when it's all said and done. You know, you have better ways to spend my life, but... Moses endured all that. And at the close of those 40 years, Moses is now dealing with the next generation. In Numbers 20, verse 2. Numbers 20, verse 2. says, There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. So this is the next generation, and they've experienced all this. Their needs have been met. They've been taken care of. They've had water. They've had food. And now they're, they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron again. You know, can you believe it? Like for them, it's like deja vu all over again. We got the next generation. Where is this going? Forty years, the children have been grumbling to Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us here? Why don't we have any food? Why don't we have any water? Over and over again, they complain to Moses. And over again, over and over and over again, he tells them, it's not him that had brought them out of Egypt, but the Lord. Now, once again, they've run out of water. And once again, they blame the two brothers You know, I don't think this was an accidental water shortage. You think about this. Do the math on this. From what I've read, you're in the desert in extreme heat. 
You need two to three gallons of water a day. This is the stage now that they've been out there for 40 years. They're in the desert for 40 years. You realize that that's the equivalent of six million gallons of water a day? I mean, what, what would we pay for that in California to have that kind of water going into our reservoirs every day? Six million gallons of water a day in the desert. And that's not counting the animals that they had with them. I would venture to guess there probably wasn't that much water in the desert on its own. I don't think it's an accident that they ran out of water. They're getting ready to cross over to the promised land. And this is the test to see if they're ready to go. To see if they're finally ready to trust God. This is their final exam at the desert school. God turns off the water. God tested them 40 years ago and they flunked. How well did the people respond this time? This time Moses is frustrated, continually intervening on behalf of the Israelites. And I think this frustration clouded his actions. We talked earlier about the stone, life-giving water that came out of that stone and what God called them to do and how he struck it with the staff. This keeps him from going into the promised land. I think really this is a metaphor in a lot of ways about what we have through Christ and the living water that comes through Christ. Jesus was struck down and killed. But you know what? It was a sacrifice that only had to take place once. That living water is something that's available for each and every one of us. We, we saw that Doyle understood that need and was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins through the living water that we have through Christ. Now, there was no need for Moses to strike the stone, yet he did. For that final 40 years of his life, Moses led the Israelites from Egypt to the land of promise, wandering in another desert. Moses was then guided by God, who appeared in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You know, we just look at what took place with him, overcoming incredible odds on multiple fronts time and time and time again because of his faith in God. We're going to close here in Deuteronomy 34, verse 1. It says, Then Moses went up to the plains of Moab, to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's so awesome to see God make good on his promises. I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your own eyes, Moses, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. As the Lord had said, he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. I mean, this is amazing. Look at the heart of God. It takes the time personally and the care personally to bury Moses. The Almighty, the All-Powerful, the All-Worthy takes his son Moses and puts him into the earth he created. This is the same God that loves each and every one of you. This is the same God that's willing to take that same degree of care and love, and involvement for you. We have that same God. He still is the same God I am today. 
He longs for us to have a relationship with us, with him, to bless us, to gather us together and spend time with us. And that longing is something that he's had even when we're at our worst. Finishing up here in verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet had risen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled. For all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. It's amazing what transpired over 120 years of this man's life. God's plan and purpose for Moses was then complete. You know, there can be those times where we're tempted to maybe give up on our dreams. When we are discouraged and down, just really remembering that our best response is to do what Moses did and go to God for answers. And we know he kept pushing. God had given to him, but he kept pushing. But he was willing to do what God called him to do. You know, we've got to remember, God has plans for each of our lives. And he's using every means possible to help us carry it out. But we need to be open to his leading and prepared to do the things that we've never expected to do. You know, as you sit here this morning, where do you fit into this story? God is doing the same exact thing with us today that he did back then. He tests us to see if we trust him. And he uses our lives to paint a picture of redemption. We are his workmanship. In Ephesians 2 verse 10 it reads, For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. See, each one of us is called to be on display as a result of Christ's sacrifice on that cross in Calvary. Each one of us has a story. And, you know, some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, you know, you don't know my life. You don't know what the things are that I've had to deal with. You don't know how badly I've messed things up. I don't deserve anything but punishment or death. And then there's the other extreme that, you know, there's that entitlement. Well, God's not doing anything I've asked him to do. I mean, why should I wait on him? I'm the only one that's going to get it done. You know, this is a club that we've all been a part of from time to time. God isn't looking for clean vessels, though. He's looking for vessels he can clean up and teach to trust him. You know, when life catches up with us, which it will, and you don't feel like you can do it, I can't do it, woe is me, why have all these things happened to me? When you say life is hopeless, you know what you're doing? Ultimately, what you're saying is the cross isn't enough. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. The waters of baptism aren't enough. What does Jesus want from you? He wants you to believe that his sacrifice for you personally is enough. He wants you to cry out to him, the rock, today, and he'll bring you that life-saving, life-giving water into your life through the Bible and others who have been transformed by Christ. It's the story of Moses. All started with the faith of one man, Moses' father, who knew God wanted to write the future of the Israelites with his son. 